You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Soupcast, coming to you from Archaeosoup Towers. By popular demand, we're taking selected videos from the Archaeosoup back catalogue and bringing them to you as convenient podcasts. As the name implies, with Archaeosoup you get a bit of everything thrown into the pot. Archaeology, discussion, humour and debate. You can find out more at archaeosoup.com. So sit back, relax and enjoy our hearty helping of Archaeosoup. Hello and welcome back to the Watching Brief for the month of August 2020. Uh, I am joined as ever by the the smart casual Andy Brockman. Uh, you know, you've got the combed hair, you've got the open open shirt collar. You know, looking 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 quite relaxed this month. I'm just trying to maintain standards after six months of lockdown. I mean, don't don't you dress for dinner at Archeo Soup Towers? Oh yeah, well it's tails and white tie every night. You know, obviously. I uh, hope so. I yeah, and we we never sit sit on the couch with a bung in the oven meal and watch uh, watch Netflix all night. No, um, but <laughs> gin, gin, gin and tonic on the terrace on the garden yeah, terrace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 what we do. Uh, but nonetheless, our ongoing watching brief, our mission continues to uh, assess the archaeological news of the day and present it here for you guys uh, as as a commentary to to add to the conversation below. And uh, and this month has been interesting in so much as this is often what uh, what Andy as a, as a journalist refers to as the silly season. Um, in so much as this this is a time when you know governments are in recess uh, and there's not there's not there's not a whole lot of new news to talk about. Um, it, but, uh, for, this is often, for example, when you know the Loch Ness monster appears on our on our uh, headline, isn't it? For example. Um, Oh yeah, I mean, the silly season is famous for well a, a, a number of things. First of all, the the um, papers would send out a, a junior member of staff mm-hmm. uh, to a, a seaside resort yeah. and you know, John Smith or something, and you were supposed to walk up to John Smith um, with a copy of that particular paper in your hands, whether it was the Daily Express or the Daily Mirror or whatever, and you'd say, uh, "You are John Smith, and I claim my five pounds." And the person you just challenged would say, "Fuck off." <laughs> You mad? Never heard of the bloke. No, no it, it, it was it, it was a uh, they they do that. Uh, but I mean, latterly, the, I mean, the Sun in particular has often run a um, great white shark scene in Channel type story. Ah, uh, yes, um, of course, yeah. To, yeah. to 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 scare all the holidaymakers on the south coast. Yeah, because well, because uh, that that's where the that's where the newspaper buying money is. Exactly. It's all migrated to the coast. So if they <gasps> so oh, certainly in Liverpool. Well, no, no, not for the sun, definitely not. Um, uh, well, for, actually, yeah. that, that's quite a good pun, actually, not for the sun in more than one way. <laughs> but um, but nonetheless... Yeah, I mean, it, yeah the, the, traditionally, there's there, there's very little real, uh, real meeting news, but I think partly because of COVID um, and also just some unfortunate coincidences, which we'll talk about later in the show, um, there's been actually quite a lot of real news in, in August, and I, I think we're reflecting that this time. Yeah, there's, there's been, it's been quite difficult to to really pare this this month's watching brief down to the the sleek, uh, curated, balanced narrative that we like to present to you guys. You know, with a bit the of Jensen interceptor of archaeological. Exactly. Yeah, a little, little little sprinkling of ginger, maybe for some spice, um, or some or some cinnamon, maybe. But anyway, 
this, despite being uh, normally quite a sleek Danish pastry, uh, this month we've had to actually... Sleek Danish pastry? I don't, well, I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe what about Danish pastries? They're very gloopy ones. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, I was thinking cinnamon. Um, oh, okay, cinnamon scrap that. Maybe, maybe, but maybe like a nice, uh, like a like a nice um, salmon. You know, salmon fillet. Of, oh, you know, filleted laid on a bed a of dauphinoise. Perfectly sliced sushi. Sushi. Oh, yes, and nicely. You have to have a knife. Yeah, sharp knife. I like. I like the analogy. Um, but we're at risk of, of veering way too far away from archaeology here with our food analogies. Um, but 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 the, the point is. Uh, there was just a lot to fit in. So before we dive into the to, to the four main segments of the Watching Brief this month, uh, there were a couple of stories we want, we want to highlight. One of them is actually on the horizon, uh, and we're starting to see this, this ship, as it were, come into port uh, in the form of uh, post-COVID, post-furlough scheme uh, trouble for particularly the smaller museums and institutions out there um, as 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 government help starts to dissipate. Um, the, the link of the month this month is actually to uh, a story about the Bronte Museum in Haworth, uh, the, the parsonage where the, the Bronte sisters grew up and wrote so many of their of their stories, um, has has put out a call, essentially a crowd fee, a crowdfunding plea uh, to, to highlight the fact that, that post-furlough, post-government help, uh, they, they're looking at, a, at an, an economic black hole in their finances. Um, now, what one one could and one often does, in my case, go on a rant about the nature of the economy and how it is that you know uh, these museums shouldn't necessarily just be for profit; they are there to enrich our lives and so on and so forth. Uh, viability issues um, uh, could also be raised, but the point is, this is going to be much more common probably in the coming months. So, so we're sort of we're putting a little flag on it here. That said, though, at the beginning, before really the the meat and bones of furlough uh meat and veg of furlough was um was announced um we uh we were seeing museums like creswell crags putting out fun, um cries for funding and aid as well uh, weren't they because they could see that they weren't going to survive up until help came never mind after help has gone away um is it possible though uh, that, that this isn't all doom and gloom. Is it possible that, that maybe we will see the Chancellor responding to individual sector needs and requirements? Because ours isn't the only sector which is currently saying to, 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 to Rishi, Rishi Sunak, uh, we need more help or, you know, we're not going to make it through the winter. No, um, I mean, we'll, we'll be, and, and this, isn't, um, this isn't just affecting small organisations like the Bronte Parsonage either. No. It's, uh, we're going to be doing a segment later on in the show about one of our largest cultural institutions, which is blaming COVID for a radical restructuring and major staff losses. Yeah, yes. Uh, that, are, that are coming down the line. Now, um, in terms of particular sector support, the government has been adamant so far that the furlough scheme whereby the government effectively nationalised the payroll of many companies mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, in order to try and keep them viable until the economy could reopen mm. um, is coming to an end in November, by November. Uh, it's it's starting to wind down now, and it comes to an end completely by November. Um, however, there is pressure on Chancellor Sunak to continue support for some sectors. Cultural sectors uh, are beginning to the cultural sector is beginning to reopen. We're seeing museums reopening. British Museum reopened last week. Um, other museums, larger museums, are reopening. The ones that can can reopen with adequate social distancing because the social distancing rules are still in place mm -hmm. 
um, but obviously smaller museums have difficulty reopening at all if they can it's so much reduced footfall that it's whether it's even worth them reopening yeah whether, whether they, uh, they can literally keep the lights on with such reduced right. footfall yeah. and, and yeah. exactly and the places like the Bronte Parsonage obviously fall into that category basically it's a house a small a small and, house in a village in Yorkshire and it's a period property so in that sense the, the corridors aren't designed for social distancing precisely uh, you know, yeah. no exactly I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm on the board of a trustees of a great two listed building which was built in the 1920s and that's one of our biggest problems that the, you know, the, the, the corridors and door, doorways and and, and room access it's not it's not a big open plan modern building it's you know it, it, it's all discrete packages and it's not so much when you're inside the rooms it's actually getting people to and from the rooms safely within the rules mm. Mm. um so you know it this is not something um it, it's not something that's easy to deal with also, having been in that building, uh, another element would be, uh, and this would apply to other such such places, would be things like access to the cafe, access to the guest shop. You know, the, these are these are these bring in money. Basically, things these like sites. the loose. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and the ba basically things like the loose. The, gu the guidance is you, you 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 even more so than normal. You have to do regular cleaning, which means having basically a cleaner on duty. Yeah. That's an extra staff person. That's an extra. That's an extra person at probably minimum wage, unfortunately. Mm. But uh, you know, but, but that hadn't been budgeted for. No. So you know, it, it's uh, there's some very difficult decisions people are having to take, and and but the the thing uh, the other uh, and, and the government would say that we put 1.7 billion pounds towards maintaining the cultural and and, and arts sector, mm. but um, there is a lot of criticism at the moment that that has been quite slow to mobilize mm -hmm. um that the application process is perhaps more cumbersome than it needs to be and I, i'm not endorsing them I'm, I'm making an observation here um I, I, it's not applicable to everybody um but also that it's primarily aimed at buildings and not people mm. um and the particular freelance payments, although there were people falling through the gaps in that as well, particularly people who were paid through uh, having formed a private company and becoming paid themselves as directors or employees of that company, um, it, it, it was a, it was a fallible system, but it was better than nothing. Uh, in, people are pointing to the contrast of uh, contrasting this country with Germany, where the German furlough scheme has just been extended for a year by Angela Merkel. Yeah. Um, Heritage sites at least can reopen. The, the sector that is suffering probably most in culture is the performing arts, music and theatre, where um, even the biggest, um, most well-off uh, commercial producers who run shows at, at, at ongoing profits like Les Mis and Cameron Mackintosh um, is laying off staff and are not looking at coming back to the West End until at least next spring. No, exactly. So, so that that's that's on the horizon. Although we're we're absolutely seeing the wake of that ship uh, as it comes into port, without a doubt. It's the the the, the, the master above the horizon and coming towards mm. us. And um, I think the last thing we we can do is, and, and the government would like us. The government is trying to get everyone in back into the office this week, saying every, you know it was as though everything was fine. It's not. COVID is not over by any means mm. and will not be for probably the foreseeable future, unfortunately. No. At least it's well into next year. No, indeed. And uh, in the second part of this, this preamble, uh, 
this actually quite long preamble. Preamble ramble. Preamble ramble. We want to just highlight uh, uh, the 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 acquisition of Ancestry.com by um, an investment company called Blackstone. Um, they have bought the company, uh, the website, and the company uh, archives, therefore, as well, for a total of four point seven billion dollars, which is an awful lot of money to invest in a in a you know in an ancestry service. Uh, but crucially, um, this is actually something that, that that we flagged a while ago in the watching brief as uh, as a, as a potential issue in terms of personal privacy and rights in terms of access to data watching brief finger on the heritage pulse yeah precisely we saw this coming a a mile off there there i polished my fingernails um in so much as the the, the issue here is that if you if you hand over your your dna to a company like this you're more or less handing over the rights to that information as well and in this instance well, less you are it's in the terms and conditions well yes so yes precisely you are you are precisely doing that and this is one of the issues that we flagged um when companies like for example Oxford Ancestors were going under um, Brian Sykes himself actually uh, uh, you know a, a grand old um, uh, pioneer in the ancient DNA sector um, was highlighting what he saw as one of the problems of a, I suppose a, moving away from an academically question-driven model to a consumer service and client-driven model for this sort of this sort well, of they, 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 they've coined the phrase haven't they consumer genomics Precisely, yeah. Consumer genomics is it's a it's it's essentially it's precisely what Brian uh, feared would happen, and in this instance, Blackstone aren't investing in a in a history company. They're not investing in the ability for you to make connections with ancestors. Companies like this don't do nice things. They're investing in the profitability of that data, and and in particular, of, I mean, you you've made um, uh, passing remarks in the past about. The, uh, the the ability to maybe I don't know advertise to you a topical health cream you know if you're genetically predisposed to eczema or something uh, this sort of st that that's that's the thin end of that wedge and also that's probably the the most benign part of that of that particular wedge um, this could this could become uh, quite a big a big uh, monster and and it also could market to you with particularly uh, imminent uh, sense of urgency. Uh, obviously, that's a tautology there, but you know, it, it, it could really basically say, look, other people with, with very similar genes to you have died of this disease, therefore you need this medicine. Yeah, there's, there's, there's something that can come that comes it's, with it's it. More direct, it's, it. It's more direct even than that, no, Mark, because mm. um, as health professionals, researchers discover more and more about the genetic components of various conditions, mm. uh, diseases and conditions, um, what this enables you, if, 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 if a company like Blackstone, through a company, an operation like Ancestry.com, has access to this massive database of people's DNA, mm. there is the possibility, for example, if you've got a genetic deposition, uh, disposition to, say, for example, certain cancers, mm -hmm. to market you directly a private cancer screening test Yeah. that saying, you have got a genetic disposition thing. Wouldn't it be a sensible precaution too? Yeah. Mm. And the way private medicine makes a lot of money is in unnecessary testing. It is alleged. 
Well, I, I've I've certainly heard uh, radio adverts where they sort of say, you know, do our and they'll call it like the health scan or something like that, where we can yeah. test you for five different types of cancer, yeah, this kind of thing. Why yeah. not? Why not just just take that worry off your shoulders and and get checked? Yeah, but if they can be more specific, if they can actually say, well, actually, you're highly likely. So in my case, for example, unfortunately, my father. Uh, uh, died of bowel cancer. In my case, they'll probably, you know, uh, flag that, <laughs> you know, and and kind of say, you know, you should get tested, you should get checked, um, yeah. which which is quite predatory in that sense. And it all stems oh, yeah. from this 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 thing that we saw coming all the way down the track. They said this question of who owns your DNA and who owns that that particular sequence once it's once it's um, produced. Absolutely. Not to mention the after-the-fact companies as well. There are lots of companies out there who will say, who will invite you to import the results that you've gained, for example, from Ancestry into their database. And from there, they'll offer even more esoteric things. So uh, a couple of months ago, we talked about on Watching Brief this question of of, uh, of making weird historical and religious analy analyses of your DNA. Um, this month, I actually saw an advert for a company that was saying uh, things about spirituality. You know, <laughs> like, like you know, um, almost, almost, not literally, but almost, essentially, saying, "Will you go to Buddhist heaven?" <laughs> you know, we can tell you because of your DNA. But and th this, this, th that's the after, that's the after uh, initial test. That's that's the people who are just then monkeying with the data. You know, this, 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 this is only going to get bigger. I think. Absolutely, data. Big people talked about big data for some time. I remember writing. God, my, my first comment about big data in archaeology, I think, was around 2010, mm. um, when I first started looking at things like this, sort of journalistically rather than just archaeologically. Mm. Um, and uh, thank you for referring to me as a journalist, by the way. I'm not a real journalist. I just, I just, it just happens that what I do these days is more journalistic than it is archaeological. But anyway, so. You're an investigative well, journalist. You've got your hard nose to the cold face of of archaeological happenings. You know, you you've, you're, you're, you you have uh, questions asked of the the DCMS all the time. You're you're, you're, you're on the ball. You're happening. I will go out and buy, I will, I will out and buy a trench coat. I'll wear it for the next watching brief. Uh, no. Need a hat with the uh, with the card, the press card. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, the press card. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, the trilby. No, uh, no. Um, yeah, big data is a commodity. Right? Yeah. And, and if nothing, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to use the B word, but that was how Brexit happened in large part. Swear job. By the people. Thank you. Yep. Uh, but but the, the people on the Leave campaign were driven by often startup, relatively new digital companies with big funding from across the Atlantic mm. uh, who saw uh, money and opportunity in very large databases. Mm. The argument was whether they used those databases always legally, and it appears possibly not. No. Probably not, in fact. Mm. But it was just a sign of where things are going, and uh, and, and and this is it is is exactly 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 the, 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 but I think the, the the privacy issues are are very, very real. Um, you can imagine, you know, for example, if you've got sensitive genetic information such as a predisposition to a particular disease, particularly for example, if somebody came up with a um, a genetic link to say certain mental health conditions, and I know there's research going on in that area mm. um how sensitive that will be particularly from an employment point of view yeah 
That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, or, and, and, and always, you know, in extreme cases, the point of view of the ability to, to blackmail somebody. Blackmail someone. Or, um, uh, yes. Dating profiles. Uh, dating profiles, you name it. Yeah. 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 Uh, ch um, potential children, you know, whether or not. So, yeah. So, yeah. Mm. Absol I, 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 absolutely. And, and if WikiLeaks has shown us nothing else, it's that there is no such thing as a secure database anywhere in the world, even a company one, even a, let alone a company one, even a. Um, Governmental, governmental one, one. yeah. Governmental so, so, one. so is, it, is this is this where the, the R word comes into it? Are we talking about the need here for regulation, or not? Um, I think we are. The EU has gone uh, a certain distance on GDPR, but I mean, when, when it comes specifically to, to 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 DNA in the medical world, I think that there is a real um, precedent for the ethical issues that are around this. Um, and I don't know if the name Henrietta Lacks means anything to you. Um, yeah, well, well I, I think I think there's, there's been a film recently about her that's come out. Uh, but but right. go go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, H Henrietta Lacks was a young black woman um, living in Virginia in the 1950s, mm. and she died of cervical cancer, mm. uh, leaving a young daughter and a husband. Um, but when she was in hospital being treated. Um, some of her cells were extracted by John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore in Maryland and for some reason the cells didn't die and there is now what is called an, an immortal line of what they call HeLa, H-E capital L-A cells which are used in research and, 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 and so on and essentially you know, those are Henrietta. Yeah. Uh, it's Henrietta's DNA. Yeah. Um, and uh, th th this came to light relatively recently. There's a book uh, by a, an American journalist called Rebecca Schlut called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. That's it, yeah. And it looks... I think, I think yeah. there's a film based on that, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I, I'm, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right there. I'm sure you are right there. Um, and and what, what, sh um, what Rebecca Schlut did was look at both the impact of this on the medical profession of, of having this line of cells available for research, but also on Henrietta's family when they found out what had happened, and the the disconnect uh, that they felt, and, and 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 the sense of how it enhanced their sense of um, having uh, lost them. They, you know, she interviewed her. Uh, you know, they they didn't even know this had happened for a, a quarter of a century. Mm. Mm. Um, and so, so here we have a weird balance, though, between informed consent and the yes. great potential of such interventions and such data but, and such. But such the great, the great research potential, mm. the great research potential, but also the great financial potential. Yeah. If that line of, you know, if you donate your DNA to ancestry, mm -hmm. and then your DNA suddenly becomes the basis of, say, a cure for for the sake of argument about cancer, mm -hmm. um, that will make the drug company that could come up with that treatment billions in profits from sales around the world, mm. more than covering its research costs. Mm -hmm. And you would see none of that, although in a sense, something even more intimate than your intellectual property has actually been the basis of that investment. Now, is yeah. that acceptable or is it not? That's, that's the question I think we have to ask, the debate we have to have. 
Yeah. Do I mean, you, can, 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 you know, should we have copyrights in our own DNA? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's also a certain disconnect in terms of visible capital there, isn't there? Mm -hmm. uh, your, your, your stuff is the capital, uh, in, which, is, which is driving that, that particular profitable activity. Uh, and yet, because it's not, <clears throat> it's not like a brick of gold that, that's been taken out of your pocket, one is less likely to go, oi, that's my, that's me, that's my, that's my stuff. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. But this preamble has now gone on for an hour, around 20 minutes, so we should, we should move on. We should amble away in, this, in the direction of the rest of the show. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now we move on to our first segment of the month in the form of the sad news that the, the huge... Beirut blast, the uh, the explosion which uh, seemingly was so stunning that some people even thought it might be a nuclear blast, a uh, some sort of low-yield nuclear uh, explosion, uh, but actually turned out to be poorly stored. Uh, was it ammonium nitrate? Um, ammonium nitrate yeah. that had been destined for fertilizer to be used as fertilizer in Africa, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that this blast not only devastated homes and lives and businesses, but also has uh, has damaged dozens of historic buildings in the Lebanese capital um, and left them at risk of collapse. Now, the, um, the, the byline here in The Guardian... Um, coverage said that UNESCO has vowed to leave, lead a global effort to rescue culture and heritage of Beirut, uh, and the FBI has, has uh, offered to join the inquiry um, to investigate the cause of the massive uh, port town blast. Um, this, this, obviously for very different reasons, has uh, echoes, for example, of the fires that we've seen in Brazilian museums as well, doesn't it? It's a, it, it, it's, it's, a it's a terrible. Uh, cultural loss in that sense, or cultural damage, certainly. Um, but also, before we go into it, we should just reiterate, clearly, help and and monetary aid needs to go to people and their lives first. We're not saying that this is more important than that. But this is some, this is nonetheless a side effect of this story, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the figures are absolutely stark. I remember I was, I was actually, uh, as we are at the moment, I was, I was working at home with the telly on in the background, and I, I normally have a yeah, you because know, I'm sad like that. I normally have a 24-hour rolling news channel on in the background. And um, around, I think it was around five o'clock in the afternoon, the um, reports started coming in from Beirut that there'd been this explosion. Mm. And then they started to switch. Uh, they, they went over live, and it was almost it was it was it was as shocking as the uh, the evening that Notre Dame caught fire, mm. um, because you're, you're, you're out of you know nowhere. You're suddenly seeing the effects of Basically, uh, 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate going bang, and uh, I mean, the estimate is around 170 to 200 people killed, um, 6,000 injured. The health services overwhelmed, partly because the hospitals were very severely damaged. Um, and the current estimate on damage is 10 to 15 billion. Mm. And this is in a country that has been racked by civil war, has barely a functioning government, which is, uh, people argue, is behind the explosion in the first place, that this mm. stuff was offloaded from a, a ship that was impounded. Mm. Um, and then effectively uh, forgotten about by the system, although some individuals appear to have tried to flag up warnings that this stuff was unsafe, and certainly unsafe to be stored in the middle of a busy port in the middle of the capital of the country. 
2,750 um, tons of it. I mean, yeah, that's crackers <laughs> in so much as the potential for an explosion. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and given that it, it, it degrades over time, becomes more unstable, mm. um, and, and, and then on top to compound it, and we, you know, we, we, we can talk about it a bit later, but you know, immediately uh, it, it fed into the um, conspiracy world as well. So there were even doctored videos uh, allegedly showing a missile hitting the, the warehouse that this stuff was in. Right. Um, and 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 you know, and and then you know Hezbollah done it or the Israelis done it or various other conspiracy the theories came up online it, when in fact it just appears to be a colossal human cock up yeah. uh, exacerbated by a system that wasn't working. And, well, and it's interesting. Um, but, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just just briefly on that point, it's interesting that um, this seems to happen with alarming speed as well. The the sort of doctored images and, and, and willful misrepresentation of footage. Um, I'm reminded of the uh, during the um, a, a, as it was still ongoing, the um, the fire in um, uh, Paris, the uh, yes, uh, Notre Dame, that's it. Yeah, the cathedral, <laughs> the wonderful yeah. cathedral, just like you know, brain work. Um, I remember that the, there was footage that someone, someone was reporting to show uh, someone in robes uh, traveling around one of the towers in Notre Dame, um, essentially trying to, to stir up a conspiracy theory that this was an Islamist uh, attack on Christendom, as it were, in, in a notably, a notably, um, uh, a notably non-religious state. Uh, it's, it's a strange target to, 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 to have. But anyway, the point is people seem to want to, to stir up these sorts of things quite quickly and often they do it in the form of doctored footage and often it's also, also, also done to, to further other conspiracy theories. Um, in the case of the, the damaged historic buildings, uh, the estimated cost from the culture minister of the Ministry of Culture, um, led by Abbas uh, Murtada, um, is said to be around $300 million dollars. Um, uh, he added that teams from his ministry were developing plans to renovate the buildings, although around 60 of them have been left at risk of collapse out of six, more than 600 buildings which had been damaged, um, which were under their care. Uh, the World Bank, in a preliminary estimate, uh, uh, sorry, assessment rather, sorry, um, said around 50,000 residential units were damaged and 80% of residential buildings and infrastructure were affected by the blast, aside from the destruction of, uh, of the port. Um, so, and, and I think... So, so go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think the thing to stress here, you know, we're not talking about a, 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 a destructive sort of conflagration like we saw at Notre Dame or in the, the cases in, 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 in Rio in, in, in Brazil. Mm. Um, what we're looking at here is the effect of blast. Yeah. And that's the, that's um, the, pressure wave. the pressure wave is generated by an explosion. Mm. Um, and it is impossible really to explain. Um, quite how powerful something like that can be. You, you just have to see the results. I mean, you might be familiar with some of the um, high-speed camera footage that was taken during the nuclear tests of the effect of a nuclear blast wave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or for example, explosion um, blast. for example, Mythbusters as well. They have some wonderful slow footage of, of a propagation yeah. of a wave. Uh, there was one when, um, not to get too off topic, but there was one when they were testing the myth of whether or not someone fell out of a, well, they did actually fall out of a bomber and land in a train station just as a bomb went off. And seemingly in this one instance, this person was saved by that upward pressure wave, despite the explosion. Isn't that amazing? Uh, they couldn't replicate it, though, uh, in the myth. But, but, but we saw this amazing 
you know, the, the air moves, basically. Everything moves out of the way of the explosion, and that's, that's the damage. And, and basically, just the air around you effectively turns into a huge battering ram. Mm. And I, I'm looking at, um, as we're talking, I'm looking at photographs, um, which we'll link to. It's an article in The Guardian, in fact, um, of the Sosor Palace in Beirut, which is this incredibly elegant townhouse that was built by one of the uh, leading citizens of Beirut in the 1860s mm. and it's now a museum it's three floors it's col a colonnaded portico it's got uh, grand you know sort of picture windows on its upper floors and so on really elegant interiors mar marble pillars Islamic art you know arches and so on it's now a museum and gallery mm -hmm. but if you look at the pictures the uh, there isn't a window left intact everything's been blown inwards um, the uh, you know frames have been uh, have come away and been blown inwards. Mm. Fragments of glass and wood um, and plaster from the from you know it, it, it's it, it, it is in and, and, and large parts of the roof off as well the tar, um, tiled roof. Well, for, for me, one of the the, one, the photo where the, the chap's holding up a comparison image in the image mm. and showing yes. where a veranda has been blown back into the building. For me, building, absolutely. For me, uh, is it <clears throat> strangely interesting from an arch arch architectural standpoint? Because it shows actually that that was a essentially a, probably a wooden or at least a thinner facade around yes. the veranda, and you've got more solid stone or brick structures on either side. But that that that's an archaeological in, in, you know, inquiry, you know, a, a, a niche thing to be interested in. But it does nonetheless it shows the force of that 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 wave just pushed through the building essentially in that direction it's quite astonishing um what wh where does this leave uh does this leave international efforts then i mean is this an, is this yet another thing that that, that we're going to be having to, well, to, to ask people to to you know i don't say that with a, with rolling eyes but essentially this isn't the first time in this watching brief we've said keep an eye out and support where you can essentially um of course um, I mean, you know, obviously organizations like unesco are mm. involved um yeah, there are large parts of Beirut which are you know, um, heavily you know, protected their, their heritage, heritage sites, other, other bits much more modern. Mm. But you know, for, um, the, um, for example, the, the uh, Federal Agency for Technical Relief in Germany is already involved. Um, the French government is heavily involved with the Lebanese government in trying to reconstruct uh, a functioning um, bureaucracy that's capable of handling this and a government that actually works mm. um, because the government was thoroughly discredited by this event uh, particularly when it became clear that it, it had been warned on a number of occasions that this was possible yeah um, well, so, also in, the, in yeah. the context as well of uh, not only as you say the the uh, recent conflict but also uh, essentially a collapsing economy as well um, this is absolutely, very, very and, 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 and absolutely, and against the background of COVID as well, like everywhere, everywhere else in the world. Mm. Um, so you know, the, and 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 the, and the really sad thing is that you know, I, 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 I um, talked about the Sersot Palace um, as, as the case study here. Um, it had been uh, just coming to the end of a twenty-year restoration project that had been put in place as the. Lebanese civil war came to, to an end in the early 90s. Mm. So all that effort is suddenly literally blown away. Well, literally, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's something to keep an eye on, as is 
in Brazil, as is Paris, you know, all these other, it's a, it's a, as is, um, uh, yeah, we recently, we were talking about sites in, um, in and around Syria as well. There's so much to keep an eye on at the moment in terms of. Uh, and, um, and again, below the radar and again, something UNESCO have been talking about and, uh, other international organizations, but uh, the civil war in Yemen is ongoing. And again, some uh, very uh, important heritage sites there are at risk or have already been damaged. So it's looking looking around the world, it's quite a depressing site at the moment and a, 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 a huge test for the international organizations and the international heritage community where, uh, and obviously you're, you're quite right to highlight at the beginning of this package, the, of, of this segment, the, um, the fact that their people's lives are the most important thing. It's most important for Lebanon, for Lebanon to get buried back as a functioning city for its inhabitants. Yeah. Um, but like us here in London and you up there in the northeast, you know, we, we live in the in wild of the north. <laughs> yeah, we're waiting for the pigs to come over the border. Um, but no, we, we, yeah, we, we live, we, we live alongside our, our heritage. And yeah. um, I think this is an example of, uh, how fragile it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Next, we come to a story that that, that I've been very interested in. Uh, as soon as it 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 put it put its head above the parapet of uh, of daily news, uh, and this is a link from Preston Park Museum and Grounds, uh, with regards to uh, an old discovery which has recently been confirmed as being something. Uh, I am talking, of course, about uh, uh, the discovery in the 1950s of a chunk of metal that has, uh, due to recent work by the inimitable Dr. Chris Capel, uh, been shown to be a, well, an Anglo-Scandinavian helmet. Now, this is interesting because actually the first I saw of this news story was on uh, Paul Blinkhorn's Twitter feed, actually. And and he went to great pains to say Anglo-Scandinavian, in so much as some people were saying it was an Anglo-Saxon helmet. Some people were saying it was a Viking helmet. No, this is a very specific <laughs> cultural diaspora. This is an interaction between um, Norse culture and uh, old English-speaking peoples in Britain. Um resulting in and this is this this is actually the the extra layer for me resulting in actually quite a mundane object quite an ugly dare i say object compared to some of the stuff that we're accustomed to seeing uh, in reenactors fairs now we'll come back to that in in a moment but chris's work has been interesting um uh, for actually I'm, i was interested to, to see to see here that he's now an emeritus reader at durham university so he was my um he was my supervisor when i was at durham Right. And he recently, right. a couple of years ago, he was retiring from teaching, but seemingly he couldn't let go of the work. And who can blame him uh, when you're working with such things as this? Uh, a helmet discovered in Yarm, not too far from Stockton-on-Tees, which is Durham's second campus. And uh, it was a, 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 a helmet that was shown to be made of iron bands and plates riveted together uh, with a simple knop on the top um, and below the brow band was, was a, is a, a spectacle or eye mask. This is, these are often called spangle helm in terms of their form and function. It's essentially it, it's, it's you know reminiscent of spectacles, but essentially it's a, it's a semicircle of metal with a centre bit down the middle there. It protects the nose and the eyes, um, in particular from your own shield bashing you in the face. In uh, in, in There's the combat. famous example. I, th I think people who know about who, who are interested in the Vikings. It's uh, is it? Oh God, uh, 
Yamalu in Norway. I can't remember if I got the pronunciation right, but it, it, it's the type. It's the type helmet for that kind of yeah. spectacle helmet, sometimes called a spectacle helm. Yeah. Runs, uh, well, and, like well, and it's interesting because this helmet is adding to actually a relatively small um, retinue of evidence from the period. Um, I, I, ha I haven't kept up to speed, so so um, you know, don't quote me on this, students at home, as it were. But I think hitherto, there's only really been one or two actual helmets from the viking area uh, area uh, era discovered and proven to be the case so this actually this is actually significant in so much as it's adding to that but also it's adding this sort of this sort of work a day feel because lots of people were quite disappointed when, when they saw this on for example oh well you know on, on twitter and facebook etc um they were quite disappointed with how clunky it looks it looks like like well it looks like something that that someone I don't know, someone who's aspirational but not quite made it into the aristocracy might wear, you know, it's... it's, it's, it's Come on, it, 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 we're talking about consumer economics here, you know, yeah. but for every Rolls-Royce or Bentley, there's a larder. Come on, this isn't a larder. This, this, this is the traps, the trappy of Viking helmets, uh, or Anglo Anglo Viking helmets. No, in all, in all seriousness, you know, it, 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 it's, it's it's a it's a um uh it's a uh it's a Delorean. That's what it is. It's De it's a Delorean. Oh, the Delorean was brilliant technology. No, um, the Deloreans are, are, are terrible. They are, they often rust from the inside out, but they look gorgeous. You see, they look quite nice, but they don't look quite like as sleek as a Ferrari. I think this is this is a Delorean, I reckon. Yeah. Back to, back, back to back to the future with this one. Eh? Yeah. Um, see what I did there. Uh, you look at it, and and anyone who knows anything about the construction of armor, you can see it's done in a way that is quick and cheap in that it's segmented components riveted together rather than beaten out of a single piece of metal mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so you can use metal offcuts you use a, a much um, cheaper uh, a, a more uh, more vulnerable way of joining the mm. parts together um, and yeah, but but, but also, but also in, in this form factor, it's not hasn't even got the advantages of being composite, like for example the Sutton Who helmet, no. whereby panels no. can be well, swapped out. Uh, this this, this uh, has uh, been uh, sort uh, of uh, hammered uh, into one object, as it were, hasn't it? Yeah. Mm. And, and also looking at it, I can see why one of the issues that they've solved, and they seem to solve it to their satisfaction, was whether this thing is genuine. Because when I first saw it, and looked, it, you know, it looks like a Victorian prop mm -hmm. yeah. from a Victorian pageant. Somebody's yeah. seen, somebody's seen a picture of a, of, 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 of a spectacle helmet in a, in a in a reference book and made it for the Viking pageant. Yeah, yeah. You know, out of um, some farming equipment or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's a bit mm -hmm. of metal plate that were lying around, you know, yeah. and 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 and. Um, it's you know, it, yeah, it, it, it looks like something that could be found in a theatre. Uh, you know, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've seen theatrical props like that. Yeah, and yet, and yet it's genuine. And the thing, and in that sense, I think one of the things that I find interesting about it. Let's let's move move away from insulting it, I suppose, to towards a more positive way of putting it. <laughs> it, 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 it we, have to, we have to treat no, we have to treat it as it is. It's you know, it's clear, it's pretty clearly from the crudeness of the construction. Mm. It's we're not talking Sutton Who or even you know Coppergate. You know these very highly worked, um, very decorative items. This is functional to the point of view, uh, point of, of brutalism. 
this is this is yeah, yeah exactly. You know, this is this is black, this is uh, this is brutalist armor. No frills. It, it does nothing but a basic exactly no frills. Mm. It does nothing but a basic you know PPE job. Well, but um, all, but but also in that in, in that in that that spirit of like a. a a sort of positive statement would be to say this is not a hollywood shape either you know in so much as this this is this is as it were so real in terms of its function and form that that sort of very buckety kind of feel uh, is the sort of thing that i imagine is never going to make it onto screen in a in a in a hollywood production and and then in that sense i find it quite comforting to see this yeah this 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 is what this is it, well frankly at the next jorvik viking festival i want to see most people wearing this <laughs> not 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 your sutton who's not your coppergates uh in not 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 even stuff that's inspired by, by that material i want to see this i want to see chunky clunky buckets because so, so uh you know i'm reminded of um and i'm often reminded of when it comes to helmets uh, of um of beowulf and a particular pas pa passage yeah, passage in Beowulf, where um, uh, they comment on how Beowulf has come across these treasures in the lair of a monster, which uh, which aren't which are no longer gleaming. Then they're not polished and shiny as they should be. So it, 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 it's one of those things where when you look at again looking at Hollywood, often they'll go for that sort of grimy look because these are the dark ages, you know. Um, yeah. Whereas actually, clearly from the literature. Uh, of the time and the stories of the time people wanted to well and frankly just for the upkeep you don't want it want it to go rusty and you want to keep it nicely shine sh nicely polished and shiny people would store their um their chain shirts for example in goose fat and wrap it in straw to keep moisture away yeah. this kind of thing um uh, so you look after it very carefully and in this instance um it's hard to see how this would have been particularly shiny in the first place since it is made essentially iron rivet i mean you can polish iron you can get a bit of a shine from it but again it, this would have been a duller color than the more high-end stuff that again in particular we see for example at sutton who um which and, and this is this is important because this this comes down to uh questions about social hierarchy and ranking which would be vis visibly um uh categorizable uh, i'm trying to sort of choose my words very carefully there and so much as color is very important for for all manner of things when it comes to trade of goods when it comes to so we know in prehistory it's clear from sites like varna in the bronze age people were not only gathering precious metals but also interesting colored objects like reds and blues and golds and this kind of thing and in this sense a, a helmet like this um, the, this guy, if there was a family photo, he'd be in the back. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> he, would... he might be at the front. This might, you know, he might. Oh, I see. Yeah, kneeling down. Like... A... Absolutely, this mm. might be the first helmet that ever been, ever, ever been owned by that particular family. This is You know, right though, and I'm so, I'm so pleased you picked this story because it it, it does uh, reinforce the point that particularly in high-end museums mm. we often see the best stuff yeah what we don't see is the stuff that the likes of you and i and our families would have been using yeah yeah you know yes yeah and if we're, that's if we're lucky yeah <laughs> you, know? ah, yeah. you were lucky <laughs> if we're lucky in that sense you're living closer to to nodnol so you're much likely to have um to, to have access to something like that maybe helmet you, know? you were lucky 
Never mind, yeah. then we had to make do with a rolled up straw. Rolled up straw? Rolled up, you don't know you were born. You don't know you were born. We would have to sleep in grit, grit, and then we'd roll around in it till our skin was sore. Um, grit, you say? Grit? Oh, you baby. <laughs> we had cheese graters, cheese graters for bed. Anyway, so we're rambling on that. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, it's been good, and it, 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 this has been a really good story. And and um, interestingly, though, this has been on display at Preston Park Museum since 2012. So um, uh, what's interesting here is that really Chris seemingly was answering a very particular question as to its veracity and also when and where it came from. Um, he says actually here, um, it was a challenging project um, as the thin iron sheet is now very susceptible to corrosion. It has to be kept in extremely dry conditions, again, keeping moisture away from this sort of stuff. Uh, so it was not only simply a question of, of um, showing the date uh, when it was created, but also working out how it has survived until it was unearthed in the 1950s. Our analysis showed that it was initially preserved in waterlogged conditions, so no uh, no oxygen could can enable reactions with the metal and therefore erode it, um, only later becoming damaged when and starting to corrode when the water table dropped. I've inserted that for reference. He didn't actually talk about water table, but that's what, what would have happened. Fortunately, it was discovered before it fully corroded away in the 1950s. Uh, although there are half a dozen early medieval helmets from Britain, there you go. The Sutton Who and Coppergate helmets being the most famous. This is the first Anglo-Scandinavian, uh, and then they put in here, uh, the BBC have put in brackets here, Viking, although specific, there's some specifics here, um, helmet from Britain. The only uh, other near complete Viking helmet is from uh, Gjermundbu in Norway, as you were saying. Um, Again, pronunciation. Apologies if we butchered that. So this is this, this is the second the second Viking helmet. I was right. So there was one example uh, now, and this is the second one that we know of. The arm helmet remains on display uh, in Stockton at Preston Park Museum. So it, it's great. It's adding to, it's adding to the um, to the library, but also it's interesting, isn't it? So we've got this fairly, and actually even even the 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 German boo example, even the Norwegian example, isn't amazing you know it's it's revealing this kind of workaday reality and i i appreciate that immensely and i think one other point i think again it has a bearing on another uh, segment we're going to do later mm. but uh, it shows the importance of maintaining accessible archives and having expert people who can go into those archives and look again and ask new questions without a doubt without a doubt and I, when actually uh, i've just noticed i've completely forgot that we, we we've tagged on a link here haven't we um to do with archivists and archiving and this is it's a little it's a cheeky little thing that i've put in here just because i i wanted to talk about it briefly and um, thank you for, for helping me there um <laughs> and that is the news part of the news from the verge.com um that uh, an unprecedented link unprecedented leak from uh, nintendo the, the computer games company has turned into a moral dilemma for archivists uh, in so much as this 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 material has been leaked from a company that has um intellectual property rights and could make the argument that actually this this stuff this material shouldn't be in the public domain um and yet archivists have a sort of moral duty as we touched on previously for example in the case of the uh, the national archives in the us to try and record things as objectively as possible um in that sense making a decision about what they should and shouldn't be archiving is in itself uh often a controversial act 
And so okay. here, actually, to, to, to remind to mind, yeah. the issue in the United States was that um, there was an argument over photographs of the women's demonstration on the day after Trump's inauguration, yes. uh, President Trump's inauguration, which um, some people said censored mm -hmm. um, the placards that were being carried, uh, so they appeared less anti-Donald Trump. Yeah, and also less, um, uh, um, what's the word, uh, anatomically... Um, uh, explicit. explicit yeah <laughs> um so so in that sense the, the uh, and in that moment what we what we commented on was the fact that in in trying to avoid political controversy they created a but they they did a political act um yeah. and in this instance uh what, what we have is a viking helmet that survived in an archive it's been accessible within these archives this is an argument as well also for continuing to fund archives because the stuff in the back uh, and the stuff even on display it's still you know live it's still going to reveal new information and and, uh, and especially when we have um uh, so very briefly uh yesterday i outlined to you um this story but i'll share it here as well where when we were doing the bmx archaeology project we had tremendous trouble um, accessing information confirming when that BMX track was constructed because we knew from a couple of different sources, one of them being the council's minutes, that they had uh, hired Rob McAlpine, who became Rob McAlpine and Sons, um, the civil engineering uh, firm, to well, to, to tag on for free the construction of a BMX track onto ballast re reclamation from a railway line. But because uh, the council kept rubbish archives, we couldn't find any maps linked with this. They just said, well, we looked at a map, they said in the minutes, but they didn't have a copy of the map. But also Rob McAlpine themselves as a private company, and this is where it links to Nintendo, um, and the broader issue of archives, uh, they, uh, they had a time limitation on how long they kept information for. So when we were looking for this from the 1980s, 1983 in fact, um, they had already got rid of that because there was going to be no legal comeback on, you know, questions surrounding what they did in the landscape. Uh, yeah, the, the, as far as they were concerned, that was done and dusted. So they'd actually emptied that portion of their archives, much to the to the regret of the company Archivist, because they thought this would be an interesting project to be connected to. Um, so it's, it's a long-winded way of, of, of highlighting the value of archives, the value of reassessing collections, um, and uh, and also the issues connected with this sort of this gray area where private companies often have information that, that would be in the public interest. That's, for example, in the case of Nintendo, actually. So one of the examples is um, there was a version of, um, I think, Star Fox um, uh, and also Super Mario 64, which uh, which they, 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 yeah, I know it's gone over your head, but the point is it, <coughs> they, they have recently actually released previously archived stuff that wasn't released as special elements of products that they put out into the world. So some of this stuff could even be monetized by them. So there's an argument to be said that actually their archive is intellectual property that shouldn't be in the public domain. It's, it's a difficult one, but it's one that's important to consider. And I think, I think this, you know, in this case, uh, a helmet found by, um, by, by public, you know, in public but by a company who's been hired to do a digging job in the 1950s this could have been lost in that kind of quagmire oh, as yes. well you know um so it's 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 a roundabout connection apologies if people at home find that to be a bit too niche talking about archives as well <laughs> but but this helmet is only 
has only revealed what it's revealed to us and has only become the second Viking helmet in the world because the collection is maintained, it has funding and uh, and also as well it's accessible to people who, who are able to reassess it. So, yeah, lot to think about. A lot to think about. And actually, one other point I just made there on archives, um, and it's something that was brought home to me very uh, strongly during the Global Project. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I, I use the uh, when it's when it's open to public pre-COVID and, and now online, I, I use the National Archive at Kew a lot for the mm -hmm. work that I do. So a lot of it's to do with the nineteenth and twentieth century and twentieth uh, century military and so on, and, and, and um, it is an amazing repository. But people need to get out of their heads the idea that archives are a complete record because they're not. No. Um, what what reaches the archive, and we can argue about figures, but it can be a relatively small percentage of what actually existed originally. Mm. Um, and some areas that are completely blank, partly because maybe there was an incident in which information was destroyed. You know, half the service records of British um, service personnel in the First World War were destroyed in a fire in the Second World War. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's before we get onto the modern times. And, and again, doing the kind of uh, work that I do in terms of investigating issues like planning and HMS Victory 1744 and things like that, where you're looking for government documents, we're increasingly finding that um, politicians and civil servants are using non-recordable methods of communicating with each other to avoid the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is bad for democracy and bad for future historians. Mm. But they use, they're doing, using things like WhatsApp groups and text messaging and burner phones mm. rather than using official emails. Yeah. In fact, Dominic Cummings has gone out of his way to say to um, uh, people, you know, use my Gmail account. Don't use my government account. Lock her yeah. up. Lock, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you might say that and I could possibly comment. Uh, but yeah, and, and this is, this, this is, it's an ongoing struggle, but it, it is a, even before we get into issues about how do you, how do you archive digital communications, so, you know, what archives are going to contain in the future is a very interesting very interesting debate. You know, the, mm. the whole Windrush scandal, it's a huge scandal, mm. where people were, you know, basically told they had no right to live in the country, completely wrongly. It was on the basis of the Home Office destroying crucial information about those people's immigration status, and they're not telling anybody about it. Mm. Mm. You know, so it's, mm. you know, at the one, at one end of it, we have the, the arm helmets, and at the other end of it, we have issues like you, you've just been describing with a, you know, a, a tech company, but also even in public life. Um, this issue of archiving and what we keep and how accessible it is and why we keep it, I mean, it's important for making these people Yeah, yeah. So no apologies, no apologies there. That was a worthwhile connection. <laughs> This podcast episode has been produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network in collaboration with Archaeosoup Productions. Find out more podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.